Before we get started, I do make a note in the episode towards the beginning that there may be some conversation that includes explicit language or descriptions of violence. That does come up in this episode, so I just want people to be aware before they get into it. This may not be the episode to listen to with children in the room or if you're in a vulnerable place. So, listener beware. Also, because I don't have a fancy recording studio, this does get a little echoey because I'm recording in a room with multiple people, so I have to move the microphone, and you can sometimes hear my chair creaking. But other than that, I think it's a pretty good episode, and I think you'll enjoy. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I'm a hospice social worker. Today, we're diving back into the Department of Corrections. This is part two of our conversation, so if you didn't listen to the first part, please go back and listen to part one. We will continue our conversation with Marie and Katie. Enjoy. We're back from break. We've taken ourselves a moment to consider how we're going to continue this conversation. And I think we've gone in the vein of mental health therapy within a prison system as the theme. And then we will revisit some other themes that have tangented off themselves in my brain and from your brain and on my paper. (laughs) Because I have so many questions. So... We were just briefly discussing, trying to get us back on track here, briefly discussing the best learned lessons and Mm -hmm. things that you've learned as a baby therapist, because I can't imagine that was an easy assignment as a first-time therapist, regardless of your (laughs) credentials. So uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about maybe overarching themes that you've learned or other kind of big lessons that other people in therapy might learn from you. Oh, man, that's a big ask. I know. <laughs> like, or whatever direction you want gonna to go I'm going to impart in. some wisdom. <laughs> um, well, so overarching like theme for baby therapists would be always be open to feedback, right? Like, again, I told that story about, hey, I'm open for feedback. Like, tell me what you're seeing. I want to understand both between, you know, the officers and the staff who thought that I was too connected to that one inmate but then also like be willing to stand up for yourself set boundaries when that person was like hey don't ever bend down when I have the cuff board open and I'm like hey don't ever correct me in front of an inmate Mm -hmm, (laughs) so that would be like the overarching theme I think throughout corrections because being a female in corrections too like you have to fucking stand your ground and it's really unfortunate that there are a lot of women Well, and men, right? Like, every profession has people who, like, tarnish the name or the record. But for females within corrections or females within law enforcement, we're already on an uphill battle. Every time a woman or a female, like, does something to set us backwards, the rest of us who remain in that profession are screwed. Like, we have however many more steps forward we have to still take. I imagine that's not just in therapy, but women in corrections in general. Like that case where those two inmates got out and the lady helped them. Yeah, the New York case. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, that one's pretty famous, right? In the last, what, has it done in the last five years? I was going to say, weren't you still doing this work when mm-hmm. that happened? Yeah, so that one was pretty famous. And she, so she was in charge, if I remember the case correctly, and I, I, I will admit that I do not dive deep into corrections within the news, or at least <laughs> I didn't when I worked for us, uh, worked for the Department of Corrections. But, so she was in, in charge of, like, tool inventory. So anytime mm-hmm. we... An inmate checks out a tool or even staff check out a tool. Like there is a system of a check-in, check-out process so that they can be accountable. And as far as I know, like she was in charge of that. And so they were able to access tools and she forged, you know, she just, she, on the tool inventory sheet said like things had been checked in that hadn't. And so they were able to use those tools to then escape. And then on the outside, she was helping them. Mm-hmm. you know, elude law enforcement or whatever. And it came to find out, right, she'd had a relationship with one of them. <sighs> and that's pretty much like just the black cloud that comes over corrections. And men and women, both, all genders do this, right? That like, mm-hmm. they screw up at work. And you mentioned that before, like you, you are down to defend Department of Corrections. And I want to hear all of those as well. Yeah. I think it's the same for hospice. Like, we will fight to defend our hospice, our hospice in particular, and hospice in general, and making sure people get access. But that doesn't mean that there's not hospices out there doing wrong, and it does put a black eye on all of us, on the whole profession. So oh, I can definitely feel that from it's you. It's devastating to hear, you know, because you're yeah. just sitting there like, oh, it's not what I want it to be for you, you know? Yeah. That's not what we want people to Oh, for sure. To experience, and that's true in any and mm-hmm. And any it, field. it gives everyone else... A bad reputation, just like hospice, yeah. Department mm-hmm. of Corrections, it does have standards across the board, but each of them operate individually. And so ev- people don't know that in general. People think everything is governed by the same, you know, people think yeah. all hospices are the same or all Department of Corrections are the same. And they don't understand that there's a difference, that they're all operated independently. Mm-hmm. It's like a franchise. Well, and yeah. like your dad, like prison versus jail, you know, mm-hmm. right. or, you know, for-profit versus non-profit. I mean, right. there's all these different nuances. Oh, shit. That's a whole nother episode, prisons for profit. Oh, yeah. I mean, private prisons are completely different. Yeah. 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 I'm not even sure I can speak to them. So, like, it might require another episode. <laughs> and I would also be the first person to say, I don't know shit about private prisons. <laughs> But to the point, I think it really is that that factor that in in every profession that especially is something that feels like it's the same across the board. Any time something bad happens in that industry, it feels so much worse because it's, like like you said, that that one more step you have to do. Now you're 10 steps behind and now it gives everyone a black eye, not just that individual or that group. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm... I'm going to probably misquote the title of this book, but there's a famous book written about corrections called Downing a Duck. Hmm. I think that's the title. And it's all about, like, compromising staff, right? Because we have lots of training within corrections about, like, hey, these are signs you might be compromised. These are signs somebody's trying to compromise you. Hmm. Um, and so it's, it's drilled into us from day one. In addition... To all of like the ethical standards, right? And even like personal values that we should or we might all possess. And so, yeah, every time you hear something about this, though, it does. It, it just dampens the public eye on all of corrections. And even in the eight plus years I worked there, 
I can count on more than two hands now how many staff of all genders have screwed up. They've either brought contraband into the prison, they've committed a felony outside of work, mm. they've done something unethical on the job, you know, they've broken laws pertaining to behavior on the job. Because again, to have any kind of relationship with an in- inmate or anybody under our jurisdiction, so even under even if somebody's on parole, to have a romantic relationship with them is actually like a federal offense mm-hmm. because there's that power dynamic taking place. And I mean, the longer I work there, the less surprised I was when something came to light. Mm-hmm. And yet it's still just like, it was a sucker punch to your gut because I know I would never do that. Because they, they even This you know, happened regularly enough, you're saying? Oh, yeah. Mm. I, I mean, I would love to believe that corrections would employ people who are better than the population we supervise. That is not always the case. And when I say better, I just mean, like, again, who act or behave in a way... Like, lawfully and ethically... Yes. More. And also... Yeah. They're human. Mm-hmm. And... Sure. They're in a very intimate setting. Power dynamics lead sure. themselves to that. So you would actually have to have a higher standard of ethical code and rules to be following to not succumb to that kind of pressure. Because you are spending yeah. more time with them than you are with your family. Oh, for sure. As, well, as me playing the devil's advocate. Hey, I appreciate that perspective. Because, I mean, we're, when we're thinking of, like, the overtime that's required of most officers at most prisons in our state right now especially during COVID. Oh, yes. yeah. I mean, people were living and breathing that air 16 hours a day. And you're right. They, especially if they lived farther and far enough away, we have a bunkhouse, like at least at the Monroe prison where I worked, we have a bunkhouse where staff could sleep. And so if you're crashing there on the eight hours you have off between doubles, right? you're right. You're seeing these individuals more than you see your own personal family. And again, some of the people who are incarcerated are really stand-up human beings. Like, they made a bad mistake, they screwed up, and they're here and they're serving their time appropriately. They're, you know, getting all their good behavior time, right? They're going to get out earlier than their max release date. So mm-hmm. we've got, like, an, an again, your earned release date or early release date, your ERD, and then you've got your max. And essentially, if somebody's on great behavior... You get out, you get a third of your time back. Mm. Like from day one when you start your prison sentence, we say, hey, this is your early release date if you don't screw up, which is a third less of what the judge sentenced you to. But every time you screw up, we start adding days. And Mm -hmm. then you can potentially max out. So if somebody got a 10-year sentence right off the bat, we're saying, hey, you can potentially get out in seven with good behavior. But every time you fuck up, you get closer to the 10-year mark. Mm -hmm. Now, can you ever get past the 10-year mark? Or would that take another sentence based on behavior? The latter. So it would take take another sentence. We can't hold someone past their original sentence date because it encroaches on their uh, basic rights. Unless they committed another offense. Correct. That would then... so you got re-sentenced for something else, right? Yeah. Okay. Or so not re-sentenced, but sentenced the new. Additional, yeah, an right. additional sentencing. I mean, the only reason, not the only reason, but one of the reasons I know we've held someone past their like early release date and gotten closer and closer to their max release date 
is if somebody like needed a lot of services that we just hadn't set up in time. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's like severely mentally ill, like is going to release homeless and we're trying to get them into a group home setting or housing voucher or something, we might say like, Hey, I know you can get out on this date, but like we want to set up additional services. And so we might override that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's a lot of hoops to jump through when it comes to that because we you know, we don't want to ever encroach on someone's human rights to get out on the date that they earned, right? Based on their behavior. But again, I worked with max custody people and so primarily, or individuals who committed a sex offense. And so I worked with people who either had had done something in prison that lost them that quote unquote good time, or I worked with individuals who committed a sex offense and they were under the parole board. And the parole board actually would allow them whether or not they were releasable. Wasn't there an island for sex offenders here? Yep. So McNeil Island in Washington State is what we call... So that's still open. It is. McNeil is still open. Technically, we don't own the Civil Commitment Center. So that's what it's called. The Civil Commitment Center falls under the Department of Social and Health Services, DSHS, I believe. Hmm. We used to have a prison on McNeil. And then, you know, again, this is just how legislation breaks down the budget that makes no fucking sense to me. (laughs) We closed our prison. So DOC's like, we saved tons of money, go us. When DSHS was like, okay, cool, the Civil Commitment Center's still open, so we still need a ferry to bring our people in and out. Right. So, you know, DOC closed. And it's unfortunate, because that prison, I have so many ideas for it. I'm like, can we please turn it into, like, a haunted fucking you know, <laughs> hotel. That would be such a huge thing for people. But unfortunately, because half of the island is still the Civil Commitment Center, it causes lots of issues. But yes, so people can be, you know, dis- the courts can say like, hey, you cannot be rehabilitated past this point. We're going to civilly commit you. You're too much of a danger to be released to society. But then they fall under a different jurisdiction. Mm. They continue to get treatment while they're on the island. And they can still petition the courts and say, hey, I've done X, Y, and Z. Could my case be reheard? So just because someone is on the island doesn't mean they won't be released to the community. Sorry, that was a tangent. No, hey. You were working for the sex offenders. I automatically had to remember McNeil Island. Yeah, no, I met some people who worked out on the island. Um, I spoke at the Sex Offender Management Conference in Washington State two years in a row. And I spoke about working with intellectually disabled and developmentally delayed individuals with sex offenses because I helped co-author the treatment manual for the Department of Corrections. So that's going to be a whole episode by itself. (laughs) (laughs) So don't get too deep into that. I will not. That really feels like an entire episode. Yeah. So I spoke at that conference of two years in a row. And the second year I spoke, several people from McNeil came up to me and essentially like said, you need to come out and meet us. You need to come and take a tour. Like, we'd love to offer you a job. And at the time, I was like, oh, no, I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> but I, I would take an interview just to get a tour of the island because I am fascinated by it. But I, yeah, I mean, I can speak to what I know about civil commitment, but I've never been out there. Okay. But you were working with sex offenders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I created, started and ran the program that is still in place right now at SOU, so the Special Funder Unit in Monroe, which is the mentally ill prison, RTU, residential treatment unit level of care. So it's our inpatient prison in the state. And I started 
the sex offender management program at that prison and ran it for two and a half years. I'm going to put a pin in all the questions <laughs> I have about that because I want to make it part of the manual and training okay. session. But if you could not get into detail about that, I'm wondering how you came to be the one to create that. I mean, maybe we might double check on that when we do the other episode, but... Well, so I can't take credit for it, right? The state had decided they wanted to create it. They just happened to hire me. Okay, gotcha. And so I'm the one who put it into, like, fruition. Gotcha. And and kind of implemented all the things. But I was working under a psychologist at the time. They had just created that position. I happened to interview, you know, apply and interview for it, and then I got it. Okay. So, I, I mean, I can't take credit for creating the program, but I can, and I will, I will take credit um, for how well it was uh, originally established. Well, we're going to dig way into that okay. later. Later. I definitely want to hear about that. So you're working with this person. Yes. Which person? <laughs> <laughs> you were working in a sexual unit, the sexual offender unit. Mm-hmm. That's what you were kind of getting into, and I interrupted you immediately <laughs> to talk about McNeil Island. <laughs> Katie, help us out here. I'm going to need more jogging in my memory, too. Shit, I don't know. more time. She was starting to talk about she was working at the sex offender unit, and I took a tangent onto McNeil Island. Yeah. I took the ferry. Yeah. And I haven't come back yet. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I started telling a specific story. I don't think she did. Um, I think I was just saying that, like, I co-authored the manual. I spoke at the treatment center, or uh, spoke at the conference. The sexual yeah, sex offender management it. conference is what it's called. Because you okay. used to do groups, but you didn't start getting into groups. I don't think so. So uh, we were talking about this on break. I can tell this on the on the on the podcast. So I one of my favorite Billy Badass stories is what I like to call it. And actually, it's funny. I was just telling Katie and her partner this story probably in January, like right before I quit. And I told her the story. I finished. And she looks at me and she just smirks and goes, all right, this part you're going to miss, right? And I go, oh, for sure. Like, there's so much about corrections that I miss. Because anybody who tells you that they don't walk into prison feeling like a fucking badass is lying to you. Oh, no, you absolutely do. I'm sorry. (laughs) Absolutely. Like, especially on days where, like, I get to wear a radio and I make, like, a perfect radio call. And, I mean, I did. I made a lot of effort to shoot the shit with my officers. These people were going to be the first line of defense well, I'm my first line of defense, right? Like, but when you do a fight for your life scenario, and we did that during training. I went through a six-week academy, and we all have a three-minute fight for your life scenario. Wow. Three minutes feels like an eternity. It is a fucking eternity. Wow. Like, it is exhausting. Anybody who's like, oh, I'll be able to handle my own. Okay, well, cool. I'll be on the ground. <laughs> right. Crying. Right. I'm like, that's what, 180 seconds, right? Like... That's a long time. When you are fighting with everything you have in you, oh because gosh, you do yeah. not know if you will survive the next 180 seconds, holy shit. And that's a good radio response, right? Mm-hmm. Like, somebody might not get there in three minutes. You might have to fight longer. Right. And so, but one of my favorite, this is one of my favorite dad stories. So I told him when I graduated the academy that after I did the fight for your life three minutes, my instructor turned to me and goes... I'm not worried about you. And I was like, I was like fuck yeah, because I'm scrappy. Um, <laughs> but I told my dad this. <laughs> and 
and it became my dad's like favorite story for the whole first year of me working there that he's like that's right nobody needs to worry about my daughter so anyways one of my favorite billy badass stories and i i did wear a radio i was one of the few therapists who tried very religiously to wear one every day and there are a lot of people who work there who are like oh that will damage therapeutic rapport and i can see both sides of the argument i suppose but I'm working in a place where safety and security does actually override therapy. Like, you are in a prison first and a therapeutic setting second. I mean, we just talked about the fact that they're already in full shackles. I don't see how a radio is going to make that much more of a difference. Yeah, when you said that, I was just thinking that, like, you know, I think it can absolutely impact therapeutic rapport, but as can anything else. And I do think that there has to be this understanding that with each therapist, you're going to engage differently with your clients, right? Sure. So no matter what, it may or may not impact, but it's up to you to decide how that's going to impact it. So I do think that there's an element of control in that. Well, and I once called a medical response for somebody having a seizure right in front of me. I mean, good thing you have the radio. Mean, they, they win. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I remember calling a medical response for somebody who was what we call tying off. So they were creating a noose to hang themselves in their cell. Oh, gosh. And I called an emergency response via radio. And again, like, when you're talking about somebody having a seizure, somebody trying to hang themselves, those seconds where you'd have to turn and run to either get to someone who does have a radio and or to reach a phone, those seconds can make or break brain damage. Yeah. So, you know, it's... (sighs) I, I do. I see absolutely both sides of it. I'd like to believe that I have enough skill and enough ability to build rapport that I've never let wearing a radio damage my therapeutic rapport. I don't think every therapist in prison could probably pull that off. But again, I was the anomaly where I was probably one of the few therapists who wore one. And it was just something I kind of always addressed right on the bat. And I said, hey, this radio is for both your safety and my safety. This is a prison first. I'll never key my radio, like essentially like turn it on unless I have to. And it just became like part of my uniform and we didn't even have a uniform, right? Like I was always in jeans and a hoodie. <laughs> like I wish they gave us a uniform. If you, if you weren't an officer, you didn't have one. Well, and I wonder if there's some protective factor to that too. I mean, I think about how that impacts us at hospice. Like we come in, we always have our badge. We always have our computer. We all, you know, we've got our phone on us. I mean, there's all these things that that set the stage almost for that therapeutic alliance where you are setting those boundaries. Like, I am not your peer, you yeah. know? And so I think that would that would speak to just being part of who you are in that capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to get back to my Billy Badass story, but I am going to, you had asked me at the beginning of this, like, what were some, like, big takeaways? One of my favorite takeaways, and I probably could have learned this in a different <clears throat> setting, but I specifically learned it, you know, as a baby therapist in prison. One of my favorite things to do with, like, new clients was to always ask them, like, what are your expectations of me as your therapist? And what are your expectations of therapy in general? And particularly working with people who had committed a sex offense who were under the parole board, you would often hear, oh, well, it's your job to get me out of prison. And, And I always thought, this is a great fucking first question because I would always correct them and say I am actually not here to get you out of prison like that is not my role (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's your role yeah and and so it always put back on the client and so that they could have ownership of it and so I'm not sure that I again I could have learned that in any other setting 
But I specifically learned to do that with the prison population, and it benefited me, you know, extensively. Mm -hmm. So that would be a big takeaway. But so my favorite Billy Badass story. (laughs) Okay, so I was, I did, I did group therapy with individuals who committed sex offense. Against these are people uh, who have like intellectual disabilities, developmental delays, like severe mental illness, all the things. And so, because we had sex, we have sex offender treatment at two other prisons in the state, but it would require you to be like in an outpatient setting. And so, if you just couldn't function there, how the hell were you supposed to get through an extensive sex offender treatment? And so, you know, this was kind of the hole that existed. And so they, the department decided to like fill that hole and say like, let's hire, at the time I was called a psychology associate. Right? Yeah. I was like, what? Shit, what was my role? <laughs> psychology associate? That sounds right. Oh shit, I might be misremembering my title. But anyway, so that's what I did. And so I worked with these individuals and had one person, I don't think he ever got out of prison. But again, I stopped paying attention to people once they were off my caseload. And which I thought was very good boundaries. <laughs> very good. And so we had just started a group therapy session. We had twice weekly meetings. And this person sits down. He's like a minute late, which a minute late on a prison movement is still pretty significant. They're only allowed to move once per hour. They've got about five minutes to get from here to there. And if they're late, we call that out of bounds. And like, you can potentially be like, you know, ushered back to your cell and what we called like sell in or sell up. And so this person shows up. And I'm like, all right, I'm not even going to address the fact that he meandered into class a minute late. And so I told him, I go, okay, well, I'm sending around my calendar for individual therapy sessions because I always had them sign up for a a monthly session that way. And he goes, no. (laughs) And I was like, okay, what? (laughs) Like, I was so thrown (laughs) off. I think I probably like stumped. What's happening? And... I should also say that at this particular moment, the reason I specifically wore a radio is because I taught group therapy behind a secured door, actually two secured doors, completely by myself with a group of potentially up to seven offenders. I was in what's called the Religious Activity Center or the RAC. And so I was in a very secluded position. They 100, I had demanded a radio when I got that position. I was like, nope, you are not going to asked me to do this without a radio mm-hmm. um, and so I'm behind two secure doors that have to be buzzed open by other people in order for me to get out or f- for me to get any help mm. so I had a radio so this guy was like no I'm not gonna <clears throat> sign up for an individual session and I was like what what's happening because <laughs> it's like eight o'clock in the morning and he goes I'm not gonna do it and I go okay well so signing up for individual sessions monthly is actually part of your treatment commitment that you agreed to and and signed consent form and it just all went to shit from there he literally turned towards me we have a table we're all sitting at a very long table but he turns towards me and goes i'm sick of your fucking attitude like out of nowhere (laughs) and my hand went to my radio and i which is like the key the keyed mic is on my chest and i told him i said get out of my classroom first And then I keyed my radio and I said, 
Pop 1230 and SUVs have a disruptive offender in the RAC. I mean, it came out perfectly, exactly as it should. Boom, 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 boom. And I got up and I started walking backwards to the door because the door is always at my back. And he stood up because I just told him to get out of my classroom. So I'm like, well, fuck me. I just told him to leave and I'm not even out of it yet. (laughs) So I'm walking backwards. And after I made the call, another offender at the table goes, holy shit, she just called a code on you. And I'm like, God damn it, you are not helping the situation. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to be assaulted. I just know it. Was he in restraints? No. So, so no. Because up until this point, you've said, talked about people in restraints in these situations. Now you're saying you're in a room with seven offenders that are not in restraints that are sexual offenders. And Correct. she can't get out unless someone buzzes her out. Twice. This, this is not Twice. a max custody group. Okay. Two different So doors. I have graduated max custody and been released. <laughs> Okay. I've been released from max custody. I'm now working with, at this same facility, uh-huh. I'm working with closed custody offenders or medium or minimum. Okay. So nobody's in restraints. Okay. All of them have a sex offense in their criminal history and are required to take this treatment. The The parole board is also requiring it, and, and so is the courts. And so, so I'm walking with my back to the door as he's coming towards me, and I'm like, Oh, fuck, I screwed this up somehow. Like, you know what I mean? Like, all the quick thoughts going through your brain. And God bless minor control. (laughs) Minor control is the person who controls my door. He heard the radio call, right? Because as soon as you call a code, main control, or SOU-based at the time, you'll hear a do-do-do-do-do-do over the radio, which alerts all our response and movement officers that something is about to be called. And so I heard SEU based do 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 to all available officers, there's a disruptive offender in the RAC. So I'm like, oh, God bless it. Like, I got the radio call off, which is what matters most. Right. Someone fucking heard me. There is a response coming. And at that moment, right, you're thinking, can I survive the next 180 seconds? So minor control heard me. And so they buzz the door open, and I can hear it unlocking behind me. So I push it open as he's still approaching me. He's not, he's not aggressively walking towards me. I'm making this sound more dire than it is. <laughs> but in the moment. It, yeah. yeah. It was quite, I mean, again, this person turns to me, I'm sick of your fucking attitude. I'm like, where the fuck did that just come from? I asked you to sign up for a monthly session. We do this every month. And so I was like, get out of my classroom. And then I called the code <laughs> and I walk in the back. So I like pop open the door and God bless it. All the officers are showing up and I'm like, so as soon as I'm outside, they're like, who is it? So I name the offender. As you know, uh, there's a couple hundred people at that facility. Most people know most of the offenders by name. And we certainly know the disruptive ones by name. So I said, it's so-and-so. They're like, awesome. I'm like, he's walking out right now. Because I didn't want them to, like, storm my classroom. Right. Because you already told him to leave. And right. he's technically doing what you asked. Right. I said, he's coming out right now. They said, okay, great. So we're all outside the classroom. Everybody can see what's happening. There's all these glass windows. And they tell him to turn around and cuff up. That's the standard uh, directive given. And he goes, I'm not going to segregation. (laughs) And the lieutenant goes, that's not what I asked. It told you to turn around and cuff up. Turn around and cuff up. And it was probably said quite a few times. And he just kept repeating, I'm not fucking going to seg. And I'm like, oh, my God. So the lieutenant at the time, oh, Fuck, I love him so much. So this is Lieutenant Richards. He has since passed away. 
He was a lovely man and he gave decades of service to corrections. And he was just this big bear of a human being and he talked in this really low, deep voice. <laughs> Slow. I mean, like, I just loved Richards. Everybody who knew Richards loved him. And so he goes, well, what do you want to infract him with? And I go, I don't know, disruptive behavior. And he goes, well, that's a minor. So we have minor and serious infractions or minors and majors, however you want to call them. And I go, oh, okay. Because at that point, I wasn't like, I was on adrenaline dump. So I'm like, I'm not even understanding what Lieutenant Richards is trying to ask me. He's trying to say like, hey, if you want him to go to segregation, I need you to give him a major. Right. So he goes, well, do you think he was trying to intimidate you? And I go, I didn't feel intimidated. (laughs) Like right off the bat, right? I'm like, I'm a female in corrections. I'm going to stand my ground. Fuck you. I was not intimidated. And he just kind of chuckles and he goes, I didn't say you were intimidated. I was like, <laughs> okay, because I wasn't. I'm a, I'm a badass. He goes, do you think that's what he was trying to do? And I go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, no, 100%. He goes, okay, can you write that up for me? Yes, yes, sir, I will. So they cuffed him up. They took him to SEG. Actually terminated him from treatment. So, like, we can kick people out of sex offender treatment if they're not, you know, up to standards and if it becomes a safety threat and... At that time, felt like a safety threat. So he did. He went to segregation, but that was one of, like, my favorite Billy Badass moments. Because I was like, damn, like, again, you can only hope that you, like, fucking call the radio call correctly. Yeah. Because when, like... A lot of pressure in the moment. (laughs) When shit is hitting the fan, because I have... I've called bad radio calls, too, because my fucking adrenaline was spiked. And I was so angry that I just, like, kept miskeying my mic. Yeah. And so I just, like, couldn't get the fucking call off. Yeah, so, no, that was one of my favorites. So I was, like, get out of my class. So then I walked back in, and I have to still, like, rein in the other six offenders who are there for treatment. Mm-hmm. And I sit down, and everybody's real quiet. And I go, so this would be a good moment to remind everybody that when you come at me at this level, expect equal or greater response. <laughs> Amazing. And, and I was like, it. and are we ready to begin class? Great. Let's talk about sexual offending. Yeah. <laughs> it was a moment. So uh, pretty badass. Yeah, so that's that's one of my favorite Billy Badass stories. And I got a lot of phone calls for the rest of the day because everybody hears the radio calls and everybody knows where I'm at, knows my call sign. So I got phone call after phone call being like, Is everything okay? Are you alright? What's happening right now? <laughs> Because until an incident is cleared, right, like, we're on what's considered, like, lockdown operation. So, like, mm-hmm. it was up to one of the response and movement officers and or the lieutenant or the sergeant to say, like, um, the incident in the RAC is cleared. Resume normal operations. Okay. You can't call that even though he's out of the room. Correct. Okay. I don't get to call. So, I can't resume normal operations because I don't have the authority. And, B, it takes a second person. It'd be no different if, like, if I accidentally, like, keyed my mic... And I, they're like, uh, Papa twelve thirty radio check. And I don't fucking respond. They have to send someone to check on me. And I don't get to clear it at that point. That once, makes sense. Once they've sent somebody to check on me, I don't get to say, oops, sorry, I didn't hear you. Papa twelve thirty is okay. Safe well, and secure. Which is great. I mean, you'd imagine that that would be a very secure way to do that. For right. sure. 
So like if a hostage being... situation was taking place, yeah. Well, I mean, I digress back to the conversation of your maximum inmate yeah. in his county cell with three other people as he murdered his What are you doing in there? Cellmate. We're playing a game. We're playing a game. Like, <laughs> I know. So that only makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, so many questions that I'm going to save <laughs> for the other episode. I would love to come back to, and I think I caught the fairy back to my train of thought. Okay. Was we were talking about oh, did the females. fairy come back from McNeil? Yeah, the female. Yeah, we're off McNeil. We're good. <laughs> but the fairy is in port. We were talking about being a female in Department of Corrections. Ah. And that story tied perfectly into that. So continue. Yeah, it's just, so again, it's so unfortunate that anytime something happens in the media, that it just, it sets women back in corrections so many feet, decades, years. And even in the eight plus years I worked there, right, we had multiple staff member be what we we call like walked off the hill. Mm -hmm. And because they did something unethical or illegal, and actually one of my really good friends ended up sleeping with an inmate. And that was devastating, and it took me years to get over. And just a stupid shit like that. I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm personally never gonna understand it. Even when they talk about like everybody has their price. You know what? You're right. I do have my price, but it's so fucking high. Nobody's ever gonna actually. <laughs> I have hit not it. found it yet. <laughs> right. I'm literally like, I have a number in my head. You will never hit it. And it has a caveat. I want you to hit this number and I want to be able to escape without any criminal charges. And nobody will ever be able to guarantee me that. Mm -hmm. And so when people fall for this shit, right, downing a duck and like being compromised, I'm like, and these are always like really beautiful people, beautiful men and women. And I just think you could have gone into any bar and like raised a glass and said, I'm looking to get lucky tonight. And somebody would have responded to that, that proposition. And yet they decided to sleep with an inmate. Like, I'm just never going to get it. <laughs> like, I'd rather be abstinent for the rest of my fucking life than throw away my entire career. I know, I'm trying to think, like, not the circumstances for myself, but <laughs> what are the circumstances, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. What about, I've got a question. What about, you know, inmates aside, what about inner office romance what does that look like and how does that impact i imagine that has just got to be a shitstorm on the hill of females not being good enough or oh we're fucking cesspool like like we are the most incestuous group of human beings i've ever met in my entire life and for anybody who's listening to this who knows me uh, yeah, I said it. Myself- I imagine if it gets out, though, then it's the same. It's the same if any female sleeps with anybody in the office, and then you have to work ten times as hard Yeah, because you're that person, even though that's complete horseshit and not the same standard as a man. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Even when a new female... Or non-binary or whoever else. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Any even, coworkers. Even when a new person starts... The amount of (laughs) panting that takes place on the hill was so disgusting and disturbing. Like, I had women who worked for me, right? I was a supervisor at one point in the eight years. And I had one new employee who worked for me, and everybody was just tripping over themselves. To the point where, like, I mean, it was just, like, grossly embarrassing, And I didn't know how else to handle that other than to, like, call it out. 
which probably like wasn't the best way to handle it. I, I will never claim to ever have been a good supervisor. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I did. I just fucking called that shit out because suddenly there'd be an officer on the unit and I would come out of my office and be like, what are you doing here? I'm doing, I'm doing my rounds. I'm doing my checks. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is the first time you've ever done this in six months of me being on this unit. Do you need something? Like, it was so obvious and so gross. So, yeah. When someone... Is there not a policy or anything? I'm wondering. So, there aren't. I mean, I don't remember there being any specific policies. There's lots of married couples, lots of dating couples. This is such a tangent. I'm sorry. It has nothing to do with it. <laughs> what? It does, though. I'm like, tell me more about <laughs> inner office politics. I mean, it of... is the drama of it, but it still yeah, relates to the minority female population For sure. in the DOC. It and does. How that... Oh, you're right. It totally yeah. does. Yeah. I mean, there's... So the only policy that I'm aware of is, like, supervisors can't date direct supervisees. Right. Like, that's an HR violation. But other than that, no. Like, there's tons of married and dating couples on the Hill. Plenty of people that I'm really good friends with. Right, who've been together for years, and like, I'd be lying if I say I didn't date where I worked a lot in eight years. Like, when you think of it, so just on the hill, and and so we call it a hill because like Monroe is kind of built up on a hill, and Monroe is made up. It's considered a complex, so it's the Monroe Correctional Complex, and it's made up of five different facilities, and so it's unlike a standalone prison, and we have twelve. 100 employees. That's a lot. A shit ton of people across all three shifts, right? Manned 24-7. So among 1,200 people, there's bound to be some co-mingling. Sure. And in eight years, I've dated plenty of people. Like, that's not a secret to me or anybody who knew me or anybody who fucking worked (laughs) there. I mean, that's what's so sick about it is that, like, you can't keep anything a secret for long. Well, again, you're you're there with somebody all the time. Double shifts. Right. In theory, a threatening situation or something where you're hyper aware, hyper vigilant. Mm-hmm. So you're already in that state. Like, it to- makes total sense. Right. And I mean. And that's where people meet their freaking partners a lot of times, is co workers. Right. Yeah. You know, I wonder the comparison, like in translation to other male dominated areas, like the military women in these positions, that, you know, I, I feel like this has to be somewhat comparable to a degree right sure yeah i don't know about the statistics but i can tell you on a first-hand basis (laughs) i mean yeah i imagine it's similar and i imagine it's also similar when people do eventually find out which they will like you say for sure then you're then labeled loose or yeah however the right but the man is in term no of course not right and, yeah, it's, and then you're, you know, if you get promoted, it's because mm-hmm. of that. It's not because of all the hard work you put in. Right. It's. Well, and I could, I could say the same thing about gender stereotypes for being compromised. So, and I can't speak to statistics, right? This is my personal opinion. But most women are walked off the hill or compromised due to a, a sexual or romantic escapade. Whereas most men are walked off the hill due to bringing in drugs, bringing in contraband, or... See, com- that is far more is interesting. difficult for me to understand than the romantic liaison. Yeah. That makes but, way more sense to me, inmate or not. But that's the thing, right? Is that the women 
who sleep with an inmate, right, or have any kind of romantic interest in an inmate is so gross, right? Like it's unforgivable and unfathomable. But I'm like, but you bring in meth. Right. And be in a skeezball drug dealer. Right, into the prison for isn't, your inmates. Isn't as comparable? Like, I mean, how, like... Well, I guess that's when you throw in the stigmatization of this se- of sex and mm-hmm. right. what that means, right? Because then, because really, I mean, and I'm, you I'm, are being compromised by an inmate, period. Yeah, and I'm not saying any of it is right, right? Like, I haven't no. done any of these behaviors. I've never committed a felony as long as, as far <laughs> as I'm aware of. But I... Yeah, I just don't get it because I'm like, that puts just as much of a stain on corrections. And I've had plenty of people walk up the hill in the eight years I've worked there who have introduced contraband to prison. And contraband currently in prison systems is off the fucking charts. I'm like, that's why we all walk around with Narcan. Like, drugs are getting into the prison, and I can assure you, most of them aren't coming through the visitors. Right. Right. The six-year-old being patted down. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Nice callback. Thank you. (laughs) So, like, it's just, it's mind-boggling to me, because it's all a fucking, all of it is a felony, right? All of it is a federal offense, given the nature of our work. Um, it's no longer just a felony. It becomes a federal offense because you're introducing contraband into a prison system by sleeping with someone who's under our jurisdiction. It has that power dynamic. They are wards of the state. You are not allowed to do that. It'd be the same thing with a, a teacher and a student. Yeah, sure. it's a vulnerable population. Right. You can't abuse your power in that way. Absolutely. And so, like, <laughs> it comes back to, like, I'm going to bring it back to, like, sex offenses. So there's this hilarious and i say hilarious because i think it's funny (laughs) but there's this prison ranking system when it comes to sex offenses right like there are people who offended against women or men adults right adult populations who are like oh whatever at least i'm not a child rapist or a child molester and so like people who offended against children in the prison pecking order are like the worst of the worst right so i used to have groups though groups of sex offender treatment with all different individuals. And so when people are like, I'm not going to go to group with somebody who offended against a child. So I would always address this really quickly and say, are you under the parole board? And they go, yeah. And I go, so are they. So in the eyes of the court, your crimes are equal. You got the same sentence. Which, that's what the parole board is. Like, mm-hmm. the parole board is five to life, essentially. Every five years... Sometimes uh, less time, but they can always give you up to five years um, and then keep increasing it Mm -hmm. at increments of five or less. So I'm like, wait, wait, wait. So in the the court size, you did the same fucking thing. (laughs) Because if you're all under the parole board, y'all have the exact same fucking sentence. So I wouldn't let that shit fly in my group. And so I think it's funny that we, as correctional employees, like, have the same pecking order, right? Like, well, I just brought meth in. I didn't sleep with an inmate. And I'm like, right. that's all. Sleeping with someone is so much less egregious. <laughs> I'm like, they're all federal. They're all federal events. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, all terrible. But that one seems so much, like, seems so much more understandable, the relational part. Like, I mean... Back to social work and back to thinking about how people even got there in the first place and what their trauma is in the past, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. I could definitely see through all of those factors how an intimate relationship would happen. But the freaking mess, come on. I know. (laughs) Well, that's why I know. 
and right think, there too. I'm think like, of like a trauma informed group though. Can you ever imagine like turning to someone and be like, your trauma isn't as bad as theirs, so they get twice as much group time as you. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that's, that's a, a great re- way to put it. That's a yeah. ridiculous way to look at therapy. And so like, why do we look at fucking crime that way? Yeah, I yeah. have no idea. No. Yeah. And I do like your comparison <laughs> with like the different types of sexual offense. And mm-hmm. that's, it's, it is, it's that, yeah, just that kind of comparable yeah. Engagement with the discussion. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I just can't imagine telling someone like their trauma's worse than yours, though. <laughs> Sorry, they get more therapy today. Like, what? Yeah. See, it was a good tangent that you went on, Katie. <laughs> They're so interesting. Do you have other questions? I probably. <laughs> probably. So many. <laughs> I think between the two of us we could just keep her here forever. I mean, you know. Who knew I had this much to say? I know. Apparently she I just needed it. to quit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else you got scribbled over there? Well, the scribbles are mostly other sessions. So we're other about... tangent sessions. Yeah, we're about almost 50 minutes in. About 45 minutes into our part two here. So <sighs> maybe let's start wrapping things up. Do you have any final Billy Badass stories that you feel like you need to share? Ooh... Okay, well, so because I I shared that I had done the radio call of someone tying off, we talked about, like, the therapeutic alliance and rapport building that comes with, like, wearing a radio. So when I had had taken a small supervisor role for only, like, three months out on the medium custody unit at SOU, and I worked for the psych associate, that's what my title was, a psych associate. Um, Full think, circle. <laughs> I was like, my God. I was like, whatever I said earlier did not sound right at the time. So I worked for a psych associate who who had told me like flat out, I don't think you should be wearing a radio. And I was like, are you telling me not to wear one? And he goes, well, no. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, because you can't actually tell me to not wear a radio. Um, particularly when one of the therapists on his unit had been assaulted during an individual therapy session. Back, So in those custody levels you have these small therapy rooms where there's like a panic button on the wall but like that's only if somebody's paying attention to the control board and sees the panic button was pressed and assumes you get to the panic button right yeah 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 or get to the door so yeah there's these like they're just you know kleenex boxes rooms like i mean they're tiny so i was like um this person's been assaulted on your unit i'm gonna wear a fucking radio thanks so it was maybe a week or two into working there and we had these holding cells. Um, I, I draw you a map, but that's probably really illegal. <laughs> not gonna oh draw. my god, that just took me to the show Prison Break. I'm not going to draw you a map <laughs> of prison ever. I know what it is, but I didn't watch it. I oh, didn't watch it either. Tattoos all over I and how c- to escape the prison? Oh, I can talk about tattoo guns <laughs> oh, getting created. Too. We need to work on that. <sighs> all right. Contraband will be a separate issue. <laughs> Oh yeah, we could have a whole episode about contraband. So anyways, we had these holding cells out in the hallway. So they weren't anywhere near like the officer stations. And we, I don't even know why we put someone in the holding cell. It wasn't part of that. Um, And someone was speaking to him, a staff member, through the holding cell. And I was like passing them, not paying any attention. It had nothing to do with me. And the staff member goes, you're wearing a radio, right? And I go, yeah. Because, like, it had been this, like, topic of controversy on that unit for the last two weeks. (laughs) And it was a staff member who didn't have a radio. And he goes, will you call a code? I have someone tying off. 
which means again like making a noose trying to strangle themselves and I said absolutely so I was like Papa whatever my number was and I go uh, SU base I have an offender tying off and the S uh, the F unit holding cell and so response shows up and like they storm the cell and like get the noose from him and put him in restraints to keep him safe I had multiple officers come up to me after that and were like, was that you man made that call? That was a good job. Yeah. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> and then we had a treatment team right after that. And I got to tell this story in front of all the people who thought that it was a fucking shit idea that I carried one. And I was like, yeah, so I carry it for their safety and mine. I... And <laughs> it was a really proud moment. <laughs> you should, it should be. Mm-hmm. I do think... I do think, in all honesty, I mean, I really like this discussion of, like, you saying, D, like, safety first, therapist second. I think there's something to be said for that, especially because you are engaging in a, you know, in a culture that is, I mean, it's the prison, like, industrial complex. You mm-hmm. know, like, you're not not a part of that. Yeah. So, you can't, what, like, not wearing a radio is you're trying to gain rapport by pretending that you're not. I mean, that's, you're not doing yourself any favors. Right. They know where they're housed. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I went to, so I went to a training once about dual roles within the prison system, and then I asked them for permission to use some of their material to create my own training, and then I delivered that to any prison staff who was willing to show up. It was mostly the therapeutic staff, custody staff, or officers were invited. Not many of them showed up, but I really wanted to hopefully intervene on the therapeutic community and, like, the therapists that work there because... They're the ones who tend to forget we have a dual role. Mm-hmm. And I never forgot that. I was like, it's prison first, safety and security matters first, everything else is secondary. And people who don't want to get on board with that maybe don't need to work there. And that's fine because not every therapist is meant to work in a prison setting. Well, yeah. I think writing that, I mean, that could be a whole other topic. I mean, how many psychologists or therapists or social workers have been killed on the job because they have been, because we put ourselves in situations that are not always the safest and Mm -hmm. we do what we can, but ultimately we are also expected to not carry a radio because why would you? Or show up without law enforcement. Yeah, exactly. I mean, those are good questions. I mean, yeah. It's a great conversation. Oh, there's so many so many of those stories, right? Where DMHPs or social workers show up to a house without law enforcement because, you know, that's their role. And man, in hindsight, like if they had only just called a cop to no, say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I went out one time, I was going to go out one time without, and the police had already kind of been involved and said like, no, 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 we'll go with you. And it ended up not being necessary, mm-hmm. but my gosh, I felt so much safer. Sure. Like just the fact that like, I'm, you know, here I am like walking up all my own badass self. Right. And they're like, no, 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 ma'am. Wait. Let me go clear the area. Okay, you can come through now. Like, I'll clear it. Like, you want me to okay. clear it with you? <laughs> but it is. It's such this thing that we don't, you know, we don't talk about. It's, yeah. For it's sure. good for you. You should be proud of yourself. I think that those are conversations that I don't think we have enough. Yeah. I think every staff member in prison should carry radio. Uh, we don't even have enough money to supply radios for all the staff that work there. So oh, look at that. There's another conversation. Uh, yeah. I was going to say that wouldn't even be possible, <laughs> but it works out because there's tons of staff who don't think they need it or don't want it. And I just think you're in the wrong setting, but whew, I mean, things have, things worked out for me in the eight years I was there and 
I, I mean, yeah, I have tons more stories. So I have one last final question to wrap this up. Okay. Even I though have I'm one not... final question after you. Okay. <laughs> I'll start mine since I'm not the actual podcast host. <laughs> mine, yeah, I'll go, go first. Would you describe your overall eight years as thrilling? <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. That should be the last question. <laughs> Do you want to ask yours That's first, Sally? Brilliant. And no. then Katie will ask. No, I will save mine for another okay. episode. Um, Let's go with thrilling. That's amazing. I feel like my answer is similar to the woman who ended up being my boss where she goes, um, sometimes it was thrilling. Um... <laughs> Yeah, there were definitely days, some days where I walked away being like, fuck yeah, I'm so meant to be here and this is lovely and thrilling and amazing. And then other days I was like, god damn it, how many days until retirement? Overall, I have more good days than bad days there. I couldn't call all the good days thrilling, but I, I don't regret my time in corrections at all. Amazing. I can't do better than... A thrilling question. So we're going to end it there for now. Uh, Marie, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. I hope that you are willing to come back because obviously, if not Katie, I have a million more questions uh, that I would love to delve into with you. So Hell yes. Thank you so much. And Katie, I mean, if the last question was any indicator, that's obviously why I need you here. So oh, just thank, you. thank you. Yeah, These, thank you. They're just so fun. Thank they're you for bringing Marie. Hey. <laughs> Hey, anytime. I'll drag her with me. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, if you have questions, you can always find me on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC. You can email me if you want to. Nobody ever has, but good luck. You can if you want to. It's uh, some... What is my email? I'll put it in the show notes. Anyway, remember, <laughs> remember to live because someday we'll all be dead. <laughs>